What I talked about last week, uh, I think most of you here, I think it's all here right now, I was talking about uh, the removal in all the new translations except the King James and the New King James Version of 1 John 5, 7. You know, stating that there's some, the oldest Greek manuscripts don't contain it. And I went through all the evidence from antiquity and everything in the Latin manuscripts that, in my strong opinion, and I'm not alone on it, but it is a minority opinion, but that it always is and always was the Word of God and should be in there, and the evidence from antiquity is overwhelming. But the argument comes from the one side that, well, they're just saying, well, it wasn't there, and some scribe added it. I want us to talk about that. I said one of the greatest evidence evidences was from antiquity in 486, which only two Greek manuscripts that survive are dated earlier than that. The Arian heresy, which was denying the full deity of Christ. They were trying to teach that Christ was created, that he was from God, that he was the most powerful being created by God, but that he was created and he was not God. And the king of the Vandals at the time, this is very well documented, he called forth all the bishops in all his provinces, right, in a large part of the world. So 350 of them convened. From my understanding, is about 200 of them had been converted to Arianism. It was, it, it was a strong... It was a strong attack on the faith and the deity of Christ, you know, during the 4th and 5th centuries. As a matter of fact, it never got stronger again until this century, in the last century, it's arisen again. But these 150, give or take, other bishops were holding true to Scripture and declaring, no, Jesus is fully God. They're opening Scriptural defense was 1 John 5, 7, quoted word for word in its entirety, starting out with saying, and as it is affirmed and written by the Apostle John, and they read it word for word as we find it today in our King James Bible. So to me, that's real strong evidence. Because if it wasn't in most of uh, the manuscripts that existed at the time, and right, you, you got to admit that they all ha they all had been reading and studying, right? These were all bishops, even though, you know, from manuscripts that they had. Not one of the two hundred Arian bishops that were arguing against it, just saying that he was not fully divine. Not one of them argued against him using that verse. Not one of them had a problem with it. Not one of them said, "Hey, that's not supposed to be in there." That's pretty strong evidence. All of all 350 of those bishops were familiar with that verse. So, with saying that, and I just said that, I believe, and I'd, I'd like to explain a little further why, first of all, I believe, and until recently, recently, the vast majority of the church agreed with, with the position that 1 John 5, 7 has 
has always been in the scripture and is the word of God, I want us to talk, to go from that and just saying, why it's, you know, they'll say, well, you know, we don't even need it. You know, they try to brush it aside. We don't need it to teach the Trinity. And that's true. Where I said the strongest evidence from antiquity to me was that it was quoted during the battle against Arianism by the bishops that were standing true to the word of God to defend the deity of Christ. What we need to understand about is it's under attack viciously now, and it's arisen again as viciously as it was in the 4th and 5th centuries. It comes in different forms. But one way or another, they're either claiming that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are, are all the same. They just appear in different forms. You know, modalism. You know, trying to say they're in different forms. Or they'll come along and, and say, and this has happened. This is being even taught in so-called, I call them cemeteries. A lot of seminaries and that, in one way or another, that Jesus, well, he emanated from the Father. Yes, he's powerful. He's the most powerful created being. But he's, and he's a God in a sense, right? But he's not, he's not equal to God the Father. And that's, that is heresy. It's rank heresy. It's blasphemy. And just as those bishops stood, you know, at the, you know, at near the close of the fifth century, defending the full deity of Christ, we, I would like us, you know, we need to be fully informed to help us, right, come to a better understanding, as I was saying, to know God better, right, to know about our faith and be able to explain our faith and defend our faith. Yes, we believe that, but can we give a full scriptural argument about why we are fully convinced that Jesus is God? Fully divine, fully, just as God the Father is all-powerful, so is God the Son, so is God the Holy Spirit. Just as God the Father is all-knowing, so is God the Son, as is God the Spirit. Fully equal, fully united, fully, they're one in total agreement and authority and power. And every, every, everything that goes with it. And to say anything different is either to knowingly or unknowingly be wrong. <laughs> Did you want to say something, Mike? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, with that, what I want to talk about is before going to that, first to make a couple statements. Okay, I'd like you to turn to 1 John 5, 7. And the first thing to ask, does anyone have something besides the King James? Uh, New King James will say it. New King James is the, only, is the other modern version that says it. <laughs> What's that? Oh, so in that version, what does 5.7 say? The three that testify, I mean, go, go on, read the whole thing. Okay, yep, and th that's, what, that's what you'll find in all the new translations. Here's what it reads, and here's what those of us that defend what's called the Kama Johannium <clears throat> read 
what it should say. Now, first, I'll read it from the ending of verse 6 through verse 8. Now, I'll read all verse 6. This is he, right, our Lord Jesus Christ, that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Now, I want to keep there. Now, to you, it jumps in, in almost all new versions now. What it, it jumps right to verse 8 and says, And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. I like to first state that according to all known Greek grammarians, that doesn't make sense. That's a serious, serious grammatical error, if that's the way it's to read. Now, in the King James and the New King James, what it reads, oh, and by the way, in 98% of all the Latin manuscripts that exist, it reads, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, to say one thing, the reason why this might have not been used so strongly during the argument for the Trinity a century earlier, before this controversy all really popped its ugly head up, was the fact that some who were trying to argue modalism might have used those last three words to argue their case for modalism, right? Oh, these three are one, just twisting that, right? Saying, well, see, they're one. They're just different, different modes. But when you understand the reading in the Greek and the good Lord gives us common sense and logic, which you're supposed to use right in our newer minds, for there are three that bear record, right? The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. You go back to the Old Testament, right? Let everything be confirmed by two or three witnesses. What are you saying? Three, the strongest one. This is confirmed by three different witnesses, three different persons. The Father, the Word, and we know from John that's unique, right? Because in the beginning was the Word, the Word was, and the Word was made, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So we know the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. So he's just saying there, and right there he's saying these there's three separate witnesses from the heavenly witness, God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So it's a very strong declaration of the Trinity. But also remember I said that the that those that fought against Arianism at the first one recorded in the big council, I want to say the, it was called the Council of Carthage. But I'm not positive about that, but it was 484. I know that, and it was a Vandal king. But remember, those roughly 150 bishops against the 200 Arian bishops that had, you know, gone astray from the faith, they used this in its entirety, saying, declaring it is written, and John affirms, in the defense of Jesus Christ's full deity, and not one of the Arians tried to say, no, no, that's not supposed to be in there, no, no. And they were all reading from all different manuscripts that were around at that time. And not one of them, not one of them argued against using that verse. Pretty, pretty strong. Pretty, pretty strong stuff, anyway, anyway you put it. But if you also get this is unique to John... And what's amazing, they try to say, the ones that will say it, they'll say it this, they, they'll, they'll acknowledge the evidence from antiquity that I went through, and there's, there's more of it. 
of all these church fathers that quoted and the fact that it's in, the, in all, almost all the Latin manuscripts, saying, well, we determined somewhere in early, the early, late, or, or, late second or early third century that some transcriber wrote it in a footnote and it made its way into the Latin manuscripts. I'll say that had to be one of the most gifted scribes ever because it fits in perfectly grammatically and it uses John's language himself that was unique to John. But when he says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, right? it just goes up the fact that he's using the Word. But also if you, if you went that out, you have, it's grammatically incorrect, and it's a serious error because, and I won't get into that, but if you, if you looked it up, right, I, I told you there was also Gregory, the Archbishop of Constantinople, who also knew Greek and was considered a, a great scholar, and he argued because he noticed they were taking out of, uh, uh, some of the manuscripts then, and he argued for its inclusion, again, using the same argument of Greek grammar that's used by those those few that actually know Greek that'll stand by it saying it, it should be in there. It should be in there now. But what I want us to look at is to go from there, and I want us to use that to dive into, let us look at what Scripture itself says that Jesus is fully divine. And the first thing I want to, look at is go to something that anti-Trinitarians to this day use against us and the Jews and everything is Deuteronomy <clears throat> chapter 6. If you turn there to Deuteronomy chapter 6, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Verse 5. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. But there it is, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. I include 5, and I'll explain why in a minute. What's interesting is if the people that are anti-Trinitarians knew their grammar, <laughs> and I'll explain that in a minute, and the ones that do, don't like what I'm about to say here, they'd realize that the word God there is Elohim. You look up the Strong's Concordance, it's number 430 in the Hebrew. It means it's the plural form of God, of deity. They could have used 410 which is used at times, many places, throughout Scripture, 430 is the most, by far the most common when speaking of God, when you using the name God. It's Elohim, the plural. They could have used 410. That's just deity. 430 is the plural of 410. And then also, the number, the word one. Now, they could have used they could have used the word which dictates uh, mono, which means the number one, or singular. But they didn't. The Holy Spirit inspired Moses here to record the word 
Ekid. It's Ekid or Ekad. I think it's Ekid. Now, that means united, not one. As a matter of fact, that word, it's in the same way when you go back to Genesis and it says, and, right, and the two will become one flesh, meaning, you know, you know, when, you know, husband and wife come together, man and woman come together, the two shall become one, right? They don't become one person, they become united, right? So actually, even their defense and their strongest verse, so they say, to, to start out their anti-Trinitarian argument, actually uses a plural form of God, as does, very first place, we'll look at that in, throughout the Old Testament, where we're given... We're given examples, clear examples, of showing that at the very beginning God was letting us know that the God is a plurality. But he, remember, he could have used that word, which it's used many times, right? Used this in the singular sense for a singular number, meaning a singular person or a singular thing. But it is never, ever used when speaking of God that the other one is never used. But when speaking of God, it's always echid, meaning united. Mike, did you have something? Mm-hmm. Yep. What I like to do is, right now, we're going to go through and some, at times, you know, we talk about the plurality, and of course, we know that God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Going to be specifying, talking about the deity of Christ today, and we'll, we'll get into that more, we'll see about the deity of the Holy Spirit also, but I want to delve in more to show, you know, the absolute, the deity of Christ, because it's, it's our foundational doctrine. Remember, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do they say that I am? Asking, you know, the people. Well, you know, some say, you know, you're the prophet. You know, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're this. And they said, but who do you say that I am? And he said, we have come to know and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he told them, flesh and blood is not revealed to these, but my Father in heaven. There's a difference between saying we believe something and coming to a saving belief where we are absolutely sure that Jesus is, he not just was, but is God in the flesh, right? He came, he was the son of God uniquely, right? Who took, who became flesh and suffered and died and rose again. Amen. That is so important. And I'd like us to take a look and just go back to a few places, but first... As Mike just mentioned, turn to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll see this throughout Scripture that, that God, right, his spirit was, you know, just revealing this all along, right? He always knows, it's like he always knows arguments are going to come up, right? But first of all, in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, plural form. They could have used 410, 
But you'll notice that throughout Scripture, and take a look, when, when referring to God, you know, I'm not saying Lord, that, that's, that's a different way, but God, almost always, they use 430. The Holy Spirit, right? And we know that all Scripture, you know, is inspired by God, right? So he almost always been speaking of himself or referring to himself, uses a plural form. That, I mean, that's just something to get us to start thinking there. Go ahead, Mike. Well, say, so, so basically, the first, you know, God, what, what does that mean? Yep. Yep. Yeah, and the other thing we want to understand, in 1 John 5, 7, when he was saying there were those witnesses, what were they affirming? They were affirming the gospel. They were affirming, they were, John was testifying that in heaven, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and on earth, the Spirit, right, because the Spirit who gives us and opens our eyes and gives us a revelation and applies the word to us, and the water and the blood, remember, they always give witness, Remember, and people argue, what exactly does that mean? But I believe he was, myself, I believe he was referring back to the baptized. There was a witness too, his water. He was baptized. What happened when he was baptized? He came out from the water. The Holy Spirit came down upon him, testifying. He was, he was the son of God. The father said, this is my son, whom I will all please listen to him. And it wasn't the only time he referred to him there. His blood that was spilt for us, the blood of the eternal son of God. I mean, the blood of the man, the one man, and that's what it talks about. It, it's so powerful. But if you just leave that seven out, it's much less powerful, and it actually doesn't make, it doesn't make very good grammatical sense. It's, you know, they, they can argue all they want when it says, well, witnesses God is greater. Well, witnesses is that? Witness of the Spirit? That, it, it's, I want us to get back to what I was talking about, the, the Trinity. So we see right there, but just go on to Genesis one twenty six. Genesis one twenty six, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So in 26, we see the plural. And God said, let us make, let us, plural, make man in our image, plural, after our, plural, likeness. And then 27, it goes back, so God, Elohim, <laughs> created man in his own image. When his own, they're singular. The fact of the matter is God is giving to us. Will we fully comprehend the internality that, that God has always been? And they've always existed. God always existed as three distinct persons with all the same qualities, all the same power, knowledge, wisdom, everything, and with perfect love 
amongst themselves, which we, now that we're in Christ, can share some share to a, a small degree some of those attributes. But it's always existed. So when those people tell you, like Jesse Duplantis, I need you, Jesse. God appeared before him in the bathroom. I need you, Jesse. That, that's blasphemous. God needs us? I mean, boy, Job is happy he never said that, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> right? You know what? That's ridiculous, right? Who are you to reply unto God? God doesn't need us. God is gracious enough to, to, to use us, to work through us, to, you know, to, to call us to prayer and work through those prayers, but he's even puts those prayers upon us. God just does according to his pleasure and his good will. He doesn't need anything or anybody, right? He says, the cattle upon a thousand hills are mine. You know, in other words, what do I need from you? What do I possibly need from you? And it doesn't mean that the thousand first hill and up beyond are not his, you know, right? Just obvious. <laughs> everything belongs to him, right? He created everything. But go on from there. Let's go to... <coughs> uh, To be okay, uh, Genesis 3, if you turn there, in verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us. Hmm. So we got to ask ourselves. Now, there's those, and I remember, I think I call, called you, Mike, about it when I first did. I picked up. It was such a good price, it was on sale. I found this, you know, when the ESV first came out and they had this study Bible there and it was so thick, it was such a great price. And then I'm reading it. And I couldn't believe, they were just putting in, in, in the study notes, it was saying, well, uh, many scholars believe that he was referring to like uh, the heavenly realm and he was just addressing his subjects. When you read that and understand that, no, there's, there's definitely what he's referring to. He's speaking to equals. Are created beings equal to God? <laughs> no. So he wasn't referring to other saints or, or anything about that. He wasn't addressing his court. Let us make man in our image, our image. He had become like one of us, right? You know, his no creature, no created being is God, has a, is equal to God <laughs> at all. Then others say, well, he was, he was addressing the angelic, the angelic realm. He was addressing angels. Man was not created in the image of angels. They're completely distinct creation. But he was saying, make him like one of us. He was addressing whoever. We are addressed in scriptures here. It's addressing equals, complete equals. So the only person's only being that could be equal to, we'll just say God the Father is what? Another God. It's not a different God. Understand that God is one. They're united. It's the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All God, but unique Yet one in essence, one in essence, right? There's not 
three different gods. They're, they're all the same, but they have distinct roles. You know, just like we here on earth have distinct roles. But it's all one God. And we see that. He gives us all kinds of examples. So does it, as yet at this point, does it start clarifying, well, there's three. No, what we see there's definitely a plurality. How many? Two, three, four, five. But there is a plurality. It's obvious. It is obvious. To, to deny it is to just to deny logic and common sense that he says the scriptures give us. The scriptures give us. Okay, go on one more place in Genesis. We'll look at it. It's Genesis 11. It won't be the only place in Genesis, though, but last one on this. On this particular point, Genesis 11, in verse... <clears throat> well, we'll start up in verse 5. Genesis 11, 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will restrain from them which they have imagined to do. Now keep in mind, verse 5 and verse 6, And the Lord came down. Verse 6, And the Lord said. Hmm, now verse 7, Go to, let us go down. And there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them. Who is he speaking to when he said, go to, let us go down? Again, it's obviously the plural. He is speaking to at least one other. But, see, we see the plurality of God from the very beginning, you know, th throughout Scripture. Another place, uh, one other place in Genesis like, I'd like us to look at, uh, go to Genesis Never forget this. Well, first, let us go to Genesis chapter 18. And we'll look at, you know, one of the, oh, this is one of the greatest ones, actually. Theophany, an appearance of God. And we believe it's God the Son because in Scripture, right, it talks about when the, many times when God was appearing in person and that it was God the Son. But people don't read that, but it was the Lord. It was the Lord God, but chapter 18 in the uh, book of Genesis, chapter 18. First, and I'm just going to skip through here because we don't have time, but, you know, look over this yourself, but I, I, I believe you will, see, you will see the teaching of Scripture here. Genesis 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared unto him, you know, Abraham, in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. Okay, go on to verse 10. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. Now, he said, when you read that out, this is the one referred to in chapter 18, 1, and the Lord appeared unto him, unto Abraham in the plains of Mamre, right? Verse 10, and he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son, and Sarah heard in the tent door which is behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I have a surety bear a child, which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
at the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. I read that to show on that that this is the same person talking, and he's, and he's referred to in Scripture as the Lord. And he's referred to as the one that is going to fulfill this promise. This is a theophany. He appeared in human form. Okay? <clears throat> Let's go on there. Go on to verse 17. As there, you know, well, verse 16, right? And the men rose up from thence. Now it was three men. And one of them was the Lord. Right? The theophany. The Lord in person. And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. Verse 17. And the Lord said... Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Okay, still in speaking. Drop to verse 20. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And of course he knew, right? He, he, he knew. I won't get into the theological aspects of it, but, but he knew. But he explained to Abraham so we could see in that the Lord is so just, he's just verified it again. I'll, I'll just show up in person. Right. <clears throat> Verse 22, And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. So the other two, which we know are angels, stood there. Now Abraham stood before the Lord. Verse 23, Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? And then remember, he has that, he has that long, you know, he has that long discussion, you know, with God, right? 50, 40, 30, 10. You know. Now, verse 33. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communion with Abraham. And Abraham returned unto his place. Okay. That right there is astonishing there, right? A theophany in that, which, which just shows that the Lord appeared before him. But I want to set that stage and understand that this was the Lord. He, he was here. He had stayed behind, right? We always read the two angels entered. You know, one of those angels I did not believe was the Lord. Remember, three appeared before him. One was the Lord. Okay. Go to chapter 19, <clears throat> verse 24. And I believe we're not, we're not told there, but the way I read this and understand this, the Lord, who had appeared before Abraham and were ended off, you know, it, of course, right, what, it was a long, these existed long before there ever chapter breaks. So we just read on a little bit, and then we find in 24, then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from who? From the Lord out of heaven. So read that. That's not, you know, that's not a mistake in Scripture. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So the Lord rained brimstone and fire upon the Lord. What, does he not know what he's writing or what he's saying here? Is it supposed to be so confusing and confounded to us? What he's showing again? No, the Lord who had. You know, sake of Abraham's sake for us writing, but for our understanding, right, was there upon the earth, and the Lord from heaven was standing fire and brimstone. 
really strong again, showing a plurality of persons in the Godhead, the Trinity. So, you know, that's what I want to say too. They say, well, 1 John 5, 7, we can still teach the Trinity. Yes, we can. But there's so much more to it than that. There's so much more to it than, than that and the power of it and the fact that I said that it goes so, so well. And, and, and by taking it out of there, it actually, it actually weakens the strength and just no, calls the nobility and even the majesty of what he's saying. It diminishes it so much. But uh, that being said, I want us to look at a few other places. Go to the book of Isaiah. We're running out of time, but I just want to lay this foundation because we're going to go over this and look into this trinity and see that we can understand too because it says, right, to grow in our knowledge, you know, of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that our God has always existed in perfect harmony with one another and it's his nature and just how great and majestic and loving and gracious that our God is. But when we go to Isaiah uh, chapter 6, in verse 8, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, so it's the Lord saying this, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Well, the singular and the plural. Both use there. Again, who's he speaking? Who will go for us? He, right, he's, he's speaking to at least one other equal here. That, that we can know and completely be confident about. But we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at that too, that we know especially from the New Testament shows, we'll look at something uh, the Old Testament does show us and does speak of, right, three, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Right, but we'll see there that we see that without a doubt, in many places of Scripture, these aren't the only ones, it talks and clearly, clearly teaches a plurality of persons in the Godhead. Yeah. Yeah. And, and trust me, right, we know that the author of all scripture, right, is God. And trust me, God knows grammar. God, God knows how to talk. He, he's, he doesn't talk in confusion, right? 
when he opens it up, when we are saved, right, he says, once we are spiritually born again, then we are able to discern the scriptures through his grace and power, amen, but he even says that. And it just verifies it, right? It's like, it says what it says. It says what it says, and what it says is a plurality of persons in the Godhead. It's just, now let's look at a couple others. Turn to Isaiah 48, and we wrap this up just a couple more minutes, but I want us to take another look at that, and I said we'll start seeing where, now it seems to, you know, start getting a little, uh, giving us a little more insight. You know, Isaiah 48, verse 16. Come ye near unto me, hear ye this. I, you know, right, the Lord, right, have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God and his spirit has sent me. Wow. Seems to be three different, three there, doesn't it? Right? Because it's the Lord speaking, come ye near unto me, hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, there am I. So I is speaking. The Lord is speaking here, right? He just said, I have not spoken in secret, right? And now the Lord God and his spirit has sent me. Three. <laughs> what I mean, right, we see, we... we we can we have the Trinity explained to us. It comes into much fur, further view and greater understanding by far in the New Testament. But those that say anti Trinitarians say, well, oh, Paul created this doctrine. Or you created it, you know, uh, first John five. You create this doctrine, it never existed, right? Because you know, they go to Deuteronomy six, verse four there, which I already showed, which actually Actually, I go, great, let's go there. Once you understand what the Lord is revealing to us there, that the Lord is one in unity, one united God, a God, a plur, a God in plurality in the Godhead, right? That's why it's referred also in Scripture. It's called the Godhead, right? Three persons, one in essence, but all equal in power, authority. Right, grace, love, it, all, all equal, all equal. It's so good there. Uh, look at one more, uh, one other one. I I want us to just look at this. Go to Psalm forty-five, and we'll have to end on this one. Psalm forty-five. There's something about it. Just great reading and studying the Word of God, isn't it? Amen. But that's what he gave it to us, not just so we can say, ha-ha, I know more than you, right? But he says that he'll draw us in and we can come to know God, know his person, know who he is, know of his character, his nature, his attributes. That's what it talks about, knowing. It means not feeling, knowing him, knowing who he is and everything he has revealed about himself. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with oil of gladness above thy fellows. God, thy God, has anointed thee with 
Well, who's he speaking of there? Go to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to see just why the New Testament helps us to greatly understand the Old Testament to a much greater degree, especially, especially on this teaching. But Hebrews, oh, I lost it there. Hebrews chapter 1, when speaking of our Lord, verse 8, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with oil of gladness above thy fellows. That is directly, directly quoting Hebrews and referring back to there, what we just read in Psalm 45, 6 and 7 is referring to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? It just says it so plainly right there. And that's uh, where we'll have to stop. But uh, Lord willing, pick it up next week. But see that it is so good that Scripture, you know, the more we know it, we can understand. But remember, it's a foundational thing. And for anyone to diminish whatsoever the deity of Christ, it's a grave attack that has to be answered. But it is rank heresy and blasphemy, they had to fight it very hard in the 4th and 5th centuries, and we're fighting it today, but most of the church is silent about it. Or, you know, they just say, well, it's surprising. Except for here, I, I look on TV, I, I hardly hear anything, see anything about it. But trust me, it, it, it goes on. It goes on a lot. But with that, any last comments or anything? Mike. And something else, some things to, to think on, and we'll touch on these things. Why is it not monism? What's so what's so heretical about that? What's so blasphemous about that? Why doesn't that not even make sense? But why does it diminish and take away from the true gospel? Because a man, just a plain man, could not withstand being crushed by God and having to suffer the wrath of God. No mere man could withhold that. Only the God-man could. But do you think God, if he just exists in three different forms, that God, who is just and holy, inflicted his wrath upon himself? God the Father inflicted his wrath upon himself? Or did he inflict it upon his Son? There's some things to think about. That's why when you really start tearing it down and looking at it, there's a lot of things that don't make sense. It takes away glory from the Lord. It takes away the meaning of the atonement and everything God the Son did. But also we must remember that God the Son, God in the flesh, came to earth and died for us and suffered. And he suffered much more than just a physical death. He took on the wrath of God because only he could do it. Any man would have perished. Only God could withstand the wrath of God. Amen? 
Okay. With that, let us close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your great grace, mercy, and loving kindness, which, as your word said, is better than life. And the longer we are here and walk with you and the more you reveal yourself to us, we realize that, that your love is better than life, Lord. You are so kind. Lord, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for opening your eyes to have faith in revealing your son to us. Father, let's pray now that help us, you know, help us to take your word in, help us to understand your word rightly, and that according to your promise, that your word would have its effect upon each of us as you purpose it to do, Lord. And may it bring to us a great understanding, and may we even glorify you and worship you in, you know, more and more in spirit and truth as we know you better and better. Father, may you be glorified in the upcoming service and all we always sing, always say, and in the word preached. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.